From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. Bread baking. It's so humble. I mean, we're dealing with yeah. flour, water, and salt, and leaven, whether it's yeast or sourdough. That's it. And it's a food that's, you know, it's a classless food. It's, it's a food that everybody loves. It's a food that speaks to the earth. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks, and you're tuning in for the first of our five-part baking week in 2019, and you just heard from our first guest, Daniel Leader. Now, Daniel was a pioneer in artisan bread baking in the United States, and he opened his Bread Alone Bakery in Hudson Valley in New York in the early 1980s. He's written several award-winning cookbooks, including the classic Bread Alone, which was published in 1994. He's now back with his new cookbook, Living Bread which features 60 recipes and profiles from bakers across the world. While he's a leader in the artisan baking movement in the United States, Daniel said he still considers himself a student, and these are many of the teachers that he's learned from. In today's show, we'll talk with Daniel about his decision to leave the restaurant industry in Manhattan to open a bakery in upstate New York, about what inspired that decision, an international trip to France, and of course, all about bread baking. Plus, we've got recipes from Living Bread that you can make at home. That's all this week on Salt and Spine Baking Week. Let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Daniel Leader joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Daniel. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. We're thrilled to have you. It's great to be here. So we're here to talk about your latest book, Living Bread, Tradition and Innovation in Artisan Bread Making. But we always like to start with our guests by sort of starting at the beginning. So let's go all the way back. You were born, I think, in Buffalo, New York. Did I get that right? Yes. Okay. We're going to condense this sort of early part of your life a little bit. But was baking or food sort of present, as you recall it, in your life early on? I I just have... A very vague but very strong memories of my grandmother's cooking. Okay. But like, like really powerful memories. And what kind of food was she cooking? They were doing like Eastern European food. Sure. Uh, my great grandmother would, I remember her making strudel okay. on the Formica table. Right. Uh, I remember the high holidays. I remember, you know, kind of beef brisket and stews. Um, right. And I remember my one grandmother had, uh, Always a an enamel jar full of cookies that she would make. Okay, yeah. Do you remember these memories quite fondly? You decide at some point that you want to pursue the culinary arts, right? Yep. And, yep. and I think you go to Wisconsin yep. for college. Yep, I'm at the University of Wisconsin. Okay. Right, right after all the Vietnam War protests, so okay. things were just beginning to simmer down. But at that point, I don't remember any of my friends talking about a career. You know, it was just a different time. Just a different time, yeah. But at that point, were you thinking about a career? Uh, no, I was a philosophy major. Okay. And, uh, and I got a job. Um, I always uh, supported myself in college, and uh, I got a job as a dishwasher. And they sure. promoted me to a breakfast cook, okay. and then a lunch cook. Uh-huh. And then they said, you're pretty good at this, and maybe... Uh, you should go to cooking school, uh-huh. and off I went. And off you went, and you went to the Culinary Institute of America. Yep. Uh, is that right after you graduate from Wisconsin? I never graduated. You never college. graduated. No, okay. I, I, so you left Wisconsin, went to the Culinary Institute of America. Yeah. And then start to work in restaurants in Manhattan? Yes. Right after graduation? But I want to say something about the culinary, is that at that time, nearly all my instructors i'll call old world european chefs okay uh-huh. okay yep and actually if you read 
Anthony Bourdain and I didn't go to school at the same time. I was a little bit before him. Sure. But if you read the chapter in Kitchen Confidential about the culinary, he nails it. Like yeah. when he nails the the chefs and the kitchens and the spirit of the place. So if someone wants to get a feeling of the culinary at that time, read that chapter. Sure. And when you say the culinary, you're talking about CIA, CIA. Culinary Institute of America. So you you graduate from there. Yep. You then start working in restaurants in Manhattan. And and I was working in restaurants that I'll call kind of like again old school sure. French restaurants. Mm-hmm. And I generally was the only American in the kitchen. Okay. For a period of f- three or four years. Yeah. Every place I worked, I was in French speaking kitchens, French staff. I would be the odd guy out at the bottom of the totem pole. Right. And the restaurants always closed the month of August. Okay. So my int- introduction to France, to, to traveling was through the people I worked with. Yeah. So you're working in these French kitchens. You're, they're, they're high end restaurants. They're Michelin starred oh, restaurants. Oh, well, I don't know. If, I don't know if Le Grenouille was Michelin starred okay. at the time, but high end. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, and you're, you're taking August's off. The restaurants close. And that's when you take your first trip to France. Is that right? I think you're 22 at the time. Exactly. And you go to Paris for the first time. And I had a list of like all the. Th- Big three star restaurants at the time. Sure. I was, I went to Freddy Girard days and I went to uh-huh. the pyramid and I went to Michel Girard and Roger Verger. I mean, I, like I, I was like w- driven to go to the, the three star restaurants. Yes. And so you're having this incredible culinary trip. At this point, you're 22. You're still thinking you're going to be a chef. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Until you have this sort of serendipitous moment. Is yeah. that right? Where yeah. you're, you're walking the streets of Paris and tell us what happens. So, uh, in, and it's funny, I, I went back recently to the Marche Mouffetard. I, I, I always stay, I, I found a hotel near the Place de la Sorbonne. Okay. Which is not mar- far from the Marche Mouffetard. Uh-huh. And I go there one morning and I get up early because I want to see them setting up the market. Sure. And I'm walking down the street and I get to the Rue Mouffetard. And as you go down the road, the, the Rue Mouffetard, it kind of slopes down. And there was this bakery on the right-hand side. It's not there anymore. Okay. And uh, the, the, there's an archway, and um, uh, bakers play great music. Okay. <laughs> because they're there, a couple people baking bread. Right, yep. So I hear this this great West African music, uh-huh. and I look through the doorway, and I see this haze of like flour suspended in the air and steam from the ovens. Uh And, you know, bakers uh, back then would dress very casually. They're wearing shorts and a T-shirt and sandals. Right. And uh, I glanced through the doorway at the scene, and they had an old-fashioned deck oven that kind of rattled when the guy would press the steam button. Right. And I'm there just watching. It's it's my first morning in Paris, and I'm watching this scene, and I'm just like, oh, my God, this is so cool. And... Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen when you load baguettes with a loader, you, uh-huh. you push the loader in, you right. pull it out of the oven, and it comes out empty. Right. Yes. And when you see when you see that the first time, it's kind of like pulling the tablecloth and the dishes <laughs> don't move. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was so cool. And then the, I, the baker sees me, and he's got this stern expression on his face. And I'm thinking, oh, he's going to come over and throw me out. Uh-huh. Right. And he comes up to me very stern. He goes, voulez-vous un baguette show, monsieur? Do you want a hat? Do you want a hot baguette? Right. And I was like, sure. <laughs> and he invites me in and I spend the morning there and, uh, he shows me how to stretch the dough and shape the baguettes and cut the baguettes. And, uh, I'm covered with flour when I leave. Uh huh. And I joked that that was the beginning of my education of the backdoor school of baking. Sure. Because I, there wasn't a baking school when I went to the CIA. 
Right. So you hadn't taken really well, there was two some weeks. cursory yeah, yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, you, Basically, they had a baking class in order to provide bread for the school. Right. Like, that okay. was the only reason yeah. there was a baking Dinner class. rolls and things. Exactly. Yeah. So you, you have this experience at this bakery in Paris, and, and is it like almost instantly you're hooked on no, baking? No, but it was kind of like, I, I, I say to people, it's kind of like, you know, when you hear a melody or you hear a symphony okay. that calls to you, uh-huh. it's like, it just... It kept coming up in my mind. And then when I got back to New York, I started moonlighting at D&G Bakery on Mulberry Street. Okay. One of the old Italian bakeries sure. that, you know, there's, there was D&G and Zito's, the bakery that was in the film Moonstruck. Okay. And I used yep. to start going to these because there weren't any French bakeries in New York. Right. So right. I started going to Italian bakeries. Okay. So you start moonlighting. And then I think a year later you go back to Paris again. And this time it's sort of like you're on a mission. Exactly. Right. You're on exactly. a mission. You're armed with a new list. Exactly. Of bakeries. Well, instead of Patricia Wells had just written this uh, New York Times article okay. about the, the 10 best bakers in Paris. Okay. So I went to visit every single one of them. Uh huh. Yes. And you actually end up going to Poulain Bakery yep. and yep. you meet Pierre Poulain, is right. that right? And, yeah. and then, but I don't go? know it. You like, don't like, like it, yeah. I, I have the, I actually found the, the, the ripped up article, you know, in a, in a book recently and I had them all checked off. And so I go to Poilin and at that point, Poilin was like a Mecca, uh-huh. you know, like you yeah. would go there, there, the line would be 45 deep and there would be, it was like United Nations, right? Like you hear every language and different kinds of people and everybody's. Right. And so there was a guy holding the door, you know, and I was like, hello. And (laughs) my French was decent enough that I could introduce myself. And he, it was Pierre Poilin and he personally took me down to see the ovens. Yeah. Fascinating. What a, what a great experience. And and then Poilin and Apollonia Poilin feature in this book, which we'll come back to in a minute. But you are a year later in Paris. You're sort of inching your way towards baking. And at some point you decide that you're going to Make the switch, right? Yeah, There's at yeah. some at some point you decide I'm leaving Manhattan. Well, I, I had written, I, I had, I had read in college uh, the series of books uh, by Helen and Scott Nearing called The Good Life. Okay, it was about moving to the country uh-huh. and, and living a simple life, and they were kind of like the beginners, beginning of the organic food, like homesteading movement in this country. Okay, sure. They were actually very influential. You know, Elliot Coleman followed them. A lot of important organic farmers. Yeah. So I had read those. I had read those books. And so then I was put, piecing together, leaving the city, making organic bread. I had met some, I had met Basile at that point. Okay. Uh, who was an organic baker in Paris. Yes. And I just started piecing it together. And so you decide, tell us about that decision. Like, is that a, an almost overnight decision? It, it, like, it, was, what it wasn't overnight, like? but like, it was pretty harebrained when I think about it yeah. now. I had two young children. Okay. So I started the bakery. I think my kids were, three and one. Okay. I mean, wow. little, little, kids. Li- sure. little kids uh-huh. quit my job, you right. know, my, my decent paint job in New York, build this wood fired oven right. and start baking. And, um, it just, you know, there were good times and bad times and hard times and easy times, but here we are 37 years later. Yeah. Exactly. And that my son who was one at the time is now CEO of the company. Right. Right. You, you know, in the book that that's not common in the United States to see father and son working together in a family business and that he's now joined you yeah. a while back, which is, really I say special. I joined him now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. So, so you open the bakery bread alone. I think it's eight, 83, 83 is when you open, you start selling loaves of bread. And, and, it, and, and it's, co- it's coincidentally, it was the same year that Acme opened. 
Okay, Acme this, here in Berkeley. Yeah, yep. and the same year the Whole Foods opened. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So you were sort of on the cusp of that. Yeah, of that but I didn't know it. I mean, this, it wasn't sure. like I didn't know about Whole Foods, and, right. and and I knew about Steve. We're friends now, but like we found out about each other like a year later. Okay, yeah. So you opened the bakery, and then we're going to condense this part a bit too, but uh, because we want to get to talking about cookbooks, a decade ish later is when you publish your first cookbook. Yeah, 1993. 1993. Okay, so a decade later. Um, how did you decide it was time to write a cookbook and to sort of put all of that into your first well, volume? It, 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 it wasn't a plan. Okay. February 9th, 1989. The New York Times featured me in the Wednesday food section. Okay. At that, pi- at that time, there was New York Times, there was Gourmet, and maybe Bon Appetit. Sure. New York Times was the pinnacle. Yeah. Next day, I had nine book offers. Yeah. Wow. February 10th, 1989, I had 10 book offers. Wow. So Literally I, the next day from when the article was Literally published. the next day. That's incredible. And that's how, that's how it happened. And so you decided the time is right. Clearly, people are knocking at my door to publish a book with them. And you're going to do it, but you have to, you have to realize that like I had, I mean, I'm like baking in this little country road outside sure. of Woodstock, New York. Like it was like a pipe dream. Yeah, right. So how do you then approach that first book, thinking about how to so, put your knowledge into a volume? Well, of you know, I, I was so. Not, I mean, I I didn't even have ten years under my belt. Yeah. I mean, and, and I it wasn't a trained person. So I had an editor at the time who just kept saying, "Write what you know. Uh huh. Only write what you know." And, uh, so I had visited some wheat farmers and I had been to Paris and we had this core group of recipes and I called a couple of baker friends for some ideas. So, I mean, it wasn't like a, a, a well planned, sophisticated enterprise. It was like, this is my life experience, period. Sure. So you do have some experience, obviously. You're pulling in from other sources and mentors of yours for this first book. And the book does quite well. And we're here to talk about your your new book. But what sort of now you have decades worth of baking experience, what to you today defines good bread? And and you say in this book, you don't think there's a perfect bread. Yeah. And and it's really interesting because, um, you know, in the social media world, like if you go to any of the the bread Instagrams. Uh Uh-huh. You, one would think the definition of good bread is this kind of big loaf right. that you slice on the bias uh-huh. and it's full of enormous holes right. and the crust is really thick and it's fairly light in color and there's thousands of these photos. You know, that's one type of good bread. Right. Um, I purposely picked recipes in the, for this book that don't look like that. Uh-huh. Like I look at denser, almost like breads that you would see like in a, a Dutch, a Dutch, old Dutch master's painting. Sure. Okay. Uh, very earthy, very dense, very chewy. Yeah. And, um, there's a lot of recipes in the book mm-hmm. and they're unusual recipes. And I tried to pick different versions of good bread. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's not one. I probably have, you know, 45 core recipes and 15 variations on a theme in the book. Right. And it's almost like it's such a personal process baking bread at home, right? That you, you even recommend a scorecard, which yeah. is in the book that you're sort of, sort of trying to improve your own process and your own recipe more than like trying to achieve some sort of There's, unbiased perfection. Exactly. And, and it, it, it's, 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 it's interesting that I should be in California and <laughs> I'm forgetting that one little piece of my history. In college, I used to read the Tassahara bread book. Uh huh. Yeah. Written by Edward Espe, Edward Espe Brown. Okay. He was, yep. a, he was a Zen monk. Yes. Yep. And, um, 
Last week, uh, I went up to uh, hear Jack Kornfield speak, the, okay. the famous Buddhist teacher, uh-huh. and he starts talking about bread baking uh-huh. in the in the yeah. to, in the in the conversation. Purely by coincidence, purely by coincidence, okay. and uh, and he was talking about Edward and and how it's never good when you're bread baking to think too much about your emotional memories. Sure. Because you really want to focus on the here and now. Yeah. Because your bread's always better. Right. And, and th- this way, when you're, when you're moving forward, you're like, Oh, well, here we are. What could it be rather than what, what was it? Right. Yeah. That's so interesting. To that tune, you sort of allude that you yourself are sort of always learning and you consider yourself sort of continually a student. Oh, absolutely. And I, know, I would say it's, it's true of a lot of bread bakers. I was, yeah. I was at the, uh, um, uh, Central Million Baking School yesterday. Okay. And Craig, the head, head of the school was there and we ended up actually having a whole conversation about different milling styles, right. about different ways flowers are graded. Oh, how do you do your sourdough? Oh, you do it this way. I do it that way. So even amongst bakers, there's, there's seldom like, I've got it nailed down sure. and I don't have to go anymore. None of you are sort of walking around with big egos saying you've perfected bread. Which is such an interesting thing because I think we sometimes look at the chef world and it's so opposite. And I think there is sort of, you talk about like the sense of community around baking. Um, and it's not that chefs and people who cook don't have a community, but I think there's something about so, like bakers. B- bakers, it's so humble. I mean, we're dealing with yeah. flour, water and salt and leaven. Right. Whether it's yeast or sourdough. Right. That's it. Right. Okay. And, and it's, it's a food that's, you know, it's a classless food. Yeah. It's, it's a food that everybody loves. Mm-hmm. It's a food that speaks to the earth. And it's just something that, I mean, here bread can be 10 bucks a loaf, but like in most places it's not. Right. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Daniel Leader, author of Living Bread. Every Tuesday on Salt and Spine, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostra and Allison Roman to This Week, Baking Week, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish exclusive and delicious recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, host incredible live shows, and so much more. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today to support our effort to bring you top-notch cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. Bay Area listeners, join us to celebrate the 2019 Baking Week at Salt and Spine this Sunday, December 15th at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco for our annual cookie swap. Last year, we had over a thousand cookies being exchanged by some of our listeners, and this year we're upping the fun with a live podcast recording with the stars of the La Cocina Cookbook. Plus, we have baking demos from former guests Maria Ziska and Baking Week guest Hetel Vasavada. If you love cookies, you won't want to miss it. Find out more at Civic Kitchen at sf.com and we hope to see you there and now back to our conversation with daniel leader author of living bread you write in the new book that writing a new book about your own bread wasn't interesting to you zero and that you wanted to write a book about the larger community to this effect and so you pull in not only other bakers but you pull in people who are growing grains and weeds people who are milling that and sort of take people through the whole process through these vignettes of people who you turn to and have learned from all over the world. Um, how did you decide that your latest book would sort of take this format and this approach? 
I um I feel lucky that I've met such such a variety of interesting people in the bread sure. industry. And um this speaks to the community. I mean the only reason I meet a farmer is because the baker wants me to meet the farmer. The only reason I meet the miller is because the the farmer's selling to the miller. The only reason I meet another uh it even goes so far that when I was visiting mills in France the the Bertrand Giraudot, who I who I write about, uh-huh. asked me if I've been to other mills. Okay. Like, oh, yeah. have you have you been to David Bourgeois's mill? And I was like, uh, yeah. And <laughs> and he was like, well, what did you think? How does it compare to our? I mean, not in this kind of competitive sure. sense, but more like, oh, what did you think? What did you learn? How does it compare to what I do? And how did it help you? Yeah. And so every every person that I've met in the book is. Almost through meeting somebody else. Right. And, and everyone welcomed me in their bakery. Everybody welcomed me in their mill. Uh, everybody welcomed me in their farm. And I felt like there's a story to tell here. Yeah. That's, that's bigger than here's 60 recipes. Yeah. And one of those people is Apollonia Palan, yeah. who you open the book with, actually. Yeah. And you say that when you reconnected with her, yeah. you were reminded of your sort of early days of enchantment with bread. What was it that sort of came back to you? When you were reconnecting with her and when you were putting, well, this you know, book I mean, together. just, just, you know, um, you know, the second that we connected and we started talking, um, I immediately told her about her grandfather mm-hmm. and, and how kind he was to me. Sure. And we started talking about her grandfather and she started talking to me about what it was like to be a little girl in the bakery yeah. and how she learned to count counting cookies to put in the back. Okay. You know, like, right. And so the conversation, like within like a minute and a half or two minutes, she's telling me very personal stories sure. about growing up. Paulin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which at that moment, I mean, I mean, Lionel Poilin was the phone, the, the first baker to become famous in the world, the first baker to make bread, like something you put on jets and fly around the world. Right. And at that moment, when she was a little girl, I mean, Poilin was, that was it. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that as a baker and as someone who knew her father and her grandfather, I wasn't a reporter to say, oh, tell me about Pam Poilin. Sure. So we ended up having a very personal conversation, which really spoke, in, in, the second I spoke to her, I said, okay, this is going to start the book because it's so real, it's so personal, and it speaks... The book is Traditions and Innovations in Artisan Bread Baking, yes. and I thought, what a better place to start. Yeah, yeah, and it's so personal to you, too, because of your, your early experience there. You've often said that good bread is hard to find, but easy to make. Do you think that's changing? Like, oh, for we, sure. Yeah, okay. okay. Um, I, I think what's really interesting about what's happening now is you're getting almost... Like a pop-up bakeries, uh-huh. like people build these little bakeries in their garage or their right. house, and then they bake some bread and they go to the farmer's market, right. um, you know, and, and I actually met three pop-up bakers when I was in uh, Napa and Sonoma and okay. Marin County in the last three days. Okay. Like yeah. guys that bake, they happen to be all guys who, uh-huh. ba- who, who bake one or two days a week. They do everything themselves. Yeah. And it's like a pop-up bakery. Right. 
Yeah. You were obviously sort of on the cusp of this artisan bread movement in the United States. You're talking about some pop-up bakers now that you're encountering. Where do you think bread baking and our culture, especially in the U.S. culture, is headed? Well, there's there's two two forces that are kind of colliding right now. Okay. The one is the no-gluten force, uh-huh. the no-wheat yeah. force. Right. And the other is bread, like, we're going to bring bread back. Yeah. And they're both strong. Yeah. And they're both outspoken. Right. Um, and I think, I think there's a turn right now. I actually think we are seeing the energy behind the no gluten thing begin, just begin to fade. Okay. And you're seeing this tremendous interest in, in artisanal bread. Sure. Uh, I think I'm calling this the third wave. Okay. Like if, yeah. it, like if Steve and I were the, part of the first wave yeah. and Nancy Silverton and Tomcat were part of the second wave. Right. There's like a third wave now. Yeah. And, um, I hope that these young bakers are around to stay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, we've lost a lot of the first wave. We've lost a lot of the second wave. Uh-huh. And I'm hoping that, that maybe with the higher prices that people are willing to pay and people being very, very mean and very like, I'm not going to spend a lot of money in equipment. I'm going to keep it mean and mean. Sure. That it, it can hold. Yeah. But there's tremendous interest. I mean, you, there's, I'm getting, I'm getting contacted daily by loads of people who, how do I start? How do I make it bigger? How do I fine tune it? Yeah. There's, there's a real force out there. And you're always willing to help. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So we're obviously showing cookbooks. I think I read you have a, a pretty extensive baking book library of your own, a couple hundred books. Are there books that have been particularly important to you over the course of your career or influential to you? Well, I would say um, uh, in terms of food writing, uh-huh. what is the title? There's a, uh, oh, what's his name? He, he wrote a book about visiting a, uh, a famous restaurant in the french alps uh it'll it'll come to me in a okay second. It, yeah but I've, I've you know i've read the classic food right. food writing uh dining at the pavillon jo- joseph weschberg okay. he wrote uh, blue trout and black truffles okay uh, so those were like the early literature books sure and then in terms of baking you know, certainly the Tassahara bread book. Yep. And then all of my com- all my colleagues. I mean, yeah. I like, I like Chad's books. I like Peter's books. I'm uh-huh. friends with the, with the Chad guy. Chad Yeah. 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 And Peter uh, Reinhardt. Yep. Yeah. And, and there's, there's probably been, I would say since bread came out, there's got to be a hundred bread books that have come out. Sure. So I like them all. I mean, yeah. I don't, I might not learn a lot, but everyone's got their, their, their nuance. Um, and, you know, I love great food photography. Sure. I love storytelling. Yes. So if there's, if there's good, some good recipes and nice photography and storytelling, I'm in. Yeah. What role do you think cookbooks play in bread making? That's interesting. Um, I think especially in the last five years or so that the, the, the mythology of sourdough has been broken down yeah. into practical how to's. Right. And people are really, soaking it up so if i think about when i write up wrote about how to make a levin and bread alone in 1993 right okay nobody had a clue right and if you if when i go when i taught yesterday uh there were 14 people in the class i think nine had active sourdoughs okay yeah sure. so so the the books have really educated a generation of new people yeah 
And I think especially millennials, like you yeah. see a lot of young people really interested in sourdough bread baking. It yeah, seems. yeah, that's totally anecdotal, but it feels yeah, like yeah, that. absolutely. So we always end with a little game. So okay. I thought um, we would hearken back to another book you wrote that we haven't talked about because it, it lends itself perfectly to our game, which is Panini Express, yes. which you published in 2008. It's a 70 recipe book. Um, and and I'm a firm believer that you can put almost anything between a couple oh, slices absolutely. of bread and make a great panini or a sandwich. So I thought we'd put that to the test. Okay. There's some cards in front of you. They're pretty self-explanatory in terms of flavors, proteins, vegetables. And then secret ingredients are sort of sometimes more obscure things, sometimes not. Um, but I'm wondering if you can draw maybe one of each. We'll do a couple rounds, um, one from each deck, and see if we can merge them together into a delicious panini or sandwich of your making, obviously, on some delicious bread. So here we go. All right. So what do we have to work with round one? We have cucumbers, which make great sandwiches. Yes. We have tempeh, which I love. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Neboshi, which I'm not so familiar with. They're dried baby sardines. Oh, that, those would be totally delicious. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And the last one is cinnamon. So I think slicing cucumber really thin. Sure. Like paper thin. Okay. I could see having like quarter inch tempeh. Okay. Sauteed with like a little skin. So it's got a little bit of Christmas to it. Uh huh. Um, a thin layer of the sardines. Okay. Yes. And maybe just like, maybe just like a, a sprinkle of the cinnamon on top. Cause I don't think you want too much of right. it, but I think like a little bit, you could do something cool with. Yeah. It just sort of warms it up a bit. Exactly. Yeah. But not, not so much that, not so much that you really get it. Right. But just something like, Oh, what's that? What's that melody that I'm feeling? Sure. And is this a panini? Is this a sandwich? What? How? Are oh, we I, I would do. I would do this open face. Open I, face. I would. Okay, I would. Sure. I would yeah. have a, a piece of sourdough bread. I would toast it nicely. Yeah. Um, and um, are we allowed to do like any oils or anything? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah you yeah. have a little larder. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah, can yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I would just. I would just pull like a little. A little bit of thick olive oil uh-huh. and, and maybe just a brush of garlic. Like if you take a clove of garlic, right. if you toast the bread and you just rub it a little bit, yeah. you don't get too much. Just to get some of that garlic oil yeah. out of there. Yeah. yeah. That sounds delicious. Let's do one more round. Okay, cool. I didn't know it was going to be this much fun. <laughs> You're doing great. Oh, this is, this is interesting. Oh, we are, we are doing great here. I'm pulling good oh, cards. Oh, okay. Yeah, you are. I'm pulling. Oh, now we're talking. So oh, we wow. so okay. we have flour we have flour tortillas uh huh okay we have tuna okay we have vanilla interesting okay and we have bell peppers okay so what I would do is uh, I would heat the tortillas uh huh I would chop a, some chilies okay okay like a little bit on there sure and then I would make a, a tuna tartare with a, with a, like lemon or lime yes. and chopped bell peppers. And, uh, the, the tuna. Uh-huh. And the last ingredient is vanilla. So again, that would be like, would I put the vanilla like, like a little, maybe what I would do is just make like a little bit of vanilla sugar. Oh, okay. And just put that underneath, but not, not too much. But think about like if you had this, a little bit of sweetness under the, right. under, under the tuna. Interesting. And the peppers. Yeah. But like, again, like, Thin. Yeah. Yeah. Playing with the tartare and the fattiness exactly. of that. Exactly. Yeah. Really interesting. Okay. Let's do one final round. All this right. This is so fun. This is totally great. Okay. Oh, now we're, we got, we got it. We're pulling great cards. Okay. Here. Awesome. 
Oh, we've got, we're, we're, we're this is a winner. Okay. Let's okay. hear it. What do we have? Okay. So this is going to be dark rye bread. Oh, okay. Okay. And we've got, um, uh, Beans. Uh-huh. So I would make a, like a, a little bit of a, of a, a black bean puree. Sure. Okay. okay. I would put, uh, I have basil and spinach. Okay. So nice. I would put some wilted spinach. Uh huh. Okay. Um, and then I smoked salmon and basil. Oh, okay. Okay. So um, I would put a layer of, of smoked salmon and I would chop the basil and put it on top. Sure. And drizzle like, a, like just like a couple of drops of olive oil, uh, sea salt and lemon juice. Delicious. And this is all on dark rye yeah, open dark face open again. Face. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That sounds delicious. You did draw some really great cards today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, this was so much fun, Daniel. Thanks so much for joining it us. It is my pleasure. And uh, thank you so much for having me. And that's our show today. Thanks so much for listening to Salt and Spine Baking Week. Make sure to tune in tomorrow for another conversation with one of your favorite baking authors. As always, you can find bonus content and recipes from all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. There, you'll find two recipes from Living Bread. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back tomorrow with another story behind the baking books you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Greetings Adventurers is an award-winning comedy real-play D&D podcast that has been running for a decade with 427 episodes in our first campaign. I didn't have back problems or kids when we started. My favorite thing about the show is that it's a group of friends playing D&D who don't take anything too seriously. Right, like would a normal group use a sphere of annihilation as a toilet? We threw so much mayonnaise in there. We just started a new campaign, so it's a great time to jump in. Or you can listen to our first level 1 all the way to level 20 adventure and have hundreds of hours of entertainment. New episodes every Monday, so listen to Greetings Adventurers on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>